Imagine Freedom is brought to you by the Survive and Thrive Advocacy Center in Tallahassee, Florida. If you suspect trafficking or need help, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline 24 hours a day, 365 days a year at 1-888-373-7888 or visit humantraffickinghotline.org. This episode may contain content related to human trafficking and trauma that is sensitive to some ears. It's so hard to find people in the community who are aware of the fact that survivors have these disabilities and even more rare for people to be accommodating of them and even rare for people not only be accommodating of them, but to not treat us as outcasts for having them. I'm Robin Hassler-Thompson, the Executive Director of the Survive and Thrive Advocacy Center, and it's my pleasure to host these important discussions with survivors of human trafficking. Their insights help all of us to fortify our communities against the often misunderstood realities of sex and labor trafficking. Please join us as we listen to what they have to say so that we can imagine freedom as a reality for all. In this episode, we imagine freedom with Christabel Robinson. Christabel is the communications and media specialist for the Global Center on Human Trafficking, where she's involved in everything from programmatics, media, graphic design, and events to research and training. A survivor herself, her passion for survivor advocacy and rights is at the forefront of her work. Christabel has years of survivor advocacy experience, including training, consultations, programmatic development, blogs, interviews, and public speaking on human trafficking and related issues. She believes in survivors leading the fight against human trafficking, and it's her goal to support other survivors. As you will soon learn, Christabel leads that mission with the understanding that many survivors are left out of the field— due to discrimination and inequality. She aims to increase inclusion in the anti-trafficking work by including all survivors from all backgrounds, races, sexual orientation, nationalities, social status, and sex. We start our conversation with Christabel's thoughts on how we talk about human trafficking. Her insights about the language and terms we use are really important to showing both understanding and respect when we're speaking with or about trafficking survivors. I love how she speaks so openly and frankly. Here's our conversation. And actually, you know, I'm thinking about that often we do say a lot with the language we use. Mm-hmm. Sometimes sometimes we say things that we don't mean to say with the yes. language we use. And why don't we take a moment now and talk about some terminology that's really um, all around the issue of human trafficking, and yeah. I'm thinking in specifically, I think you know what I'm talking about is the use of the term victim yeah. of survivor. Mm-hmm. And today, again, I had somebody say, this is the first time I've heard the phrase lived experience expert, mm. and they really liked that. Yeah. So what do, you, what do you think about those terms, and and what can we say is is maybe the best way to approach uh, someone, or even talk about this issue in an abstract way. Should we should we use the word victim? Should we use the word survivor? Mm-hmm. Maybe we don't use yeah. any of them. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I'll disclose that uh, this issue is deeply personal to each and 
each individual and that while I may have my opinions and I will express them for you, that may not reflect someone else's. Very and good. that I hope that if you're listening and it doesn't reflect your personal view or opinions, that I am not pushing those on you. Um, in my work and what I advocate for myself is when saying the word victim, it refers to someone who is in the act of being victimized. Uh, so if uh, someone is in an active trafficking situation and law enforcement is working to actively help that person exit, or maybe they're doing an active investigation and they say the victim, they're referring to the person who is being victimized by the trafficker. For me personally, the second that that person is exiting trafficking or they, they come forward or they've been identified that person becomes a survivor because they've survived. Uh, from that point forward, they are a survivor. Not, they are not the victim. I realize that maybe legally in court, they may be called the victim for the sake right. of the case. Right. Um, but to reduce someone to being the victim in the room is so debasing, at least, again, in my my experience and the experience of many that I'm close with. Because you, you have survived. Sure, maybe... I was a victim and I was victimized, but that does not mean I'm, I am perpetually a victim for the rest of my life. So how do you refer to yourself then? I refer to myself as a lived experience professional or expert based on the conversation. Sometimes I am a, just a professional in the field. I differentiate the two for myself personally to say that I am not uh, just a survivor, though, I do use my lived experience in my work, but I have a series of skill sets that I bring. So, like, I do media management, I do digital design, I work in research and programmatics. And I, so I am a professional in the field, and I am what P <laughs> I am the combination of two separate groups that have been uh, divided for a very long time in this, in this uh, community where I'm not just a professional working in the field. And I'm not just a survivor there telling their story. I'm a mesh. I used my lived experience to reflect in my programmatics and in my research and, and how I interact with other organizations, other survivors even. I bring that lived experience to say, hey, maybe this is why that won't work. Mm -hmm. Or maybe that's why that's harmful. But I'm still building programs and I'm still contributing my professional skill sets to the team. And if I if I cross over to expert, maybe it's because I feel, I feel confident in the level of knowledge I have on a certain subject. And so I'll say, yeah, I'm a lived uh, lived experience for expert on this topic. And I, and I use my lived experience to bring into my expertise on this topic. And I consider myself well-informed and able to well-educate. And some people do the same thing as well and some don't. And I think it comes down to each survivor's individual choice on how they want to handle those situations, how they want to, to educate others in the room. And, it, yeah, it just sort of fluctuates depending on who you're talking to. But that's why I do it. And, I, you know, it strikes me, too, uh, that it's really incumbent on anyone who is, say, hiring someone mm -hmm. for uh, a position or for a, a job or a training to, to ask. Yeah. How would you like me yeah. to refer to you? What, yeah. What's comfortable for you? Mm -hmm. And would you like to, um, you know, maybe you don't want to – any of those yeah. monikers. I am in the process of piloting a nationwide speakers bureau specifically for survivors. We're calling it the LEAP program, Lived Experience Anti-Trafficking Professional Partnerships. Wonderful. Um, and one of the one of the first things that 
uh, survivors in the group have to do is say, how do you want to be referred to? Do you want to be a survivor advocate, survivor leader? Maybe you just want to be called survivor. Maybe you want to be called a lived experience professional or expert. But we, we make sure that that title is solidified. Their organization is solidified or none at all if they don't want to do that. But it's saying like, how do you want to identify so that when we go to these uh, partnering, partnering organizations or entities, we make sure that right off the bat, we're like, this is who they are. This is how they prefer to be called. And here are the guidelines, the boundaries, the triggers, um, mm-hmm. boundaries. And this is what you have to abide by if you want to work with someone. Uh, if not, I'm sorry, but you have to go. Exactly. Oh, well, that's, that is a great contribution to mm. the field and to our communities. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, you know, you're making me think. <laughs> when we talk, I, I have so many different Ideas mm-hmm. and thoughts that get uh, like, oh, that sounds interesting. Let's I talk know. about Every that. Every time we talk, I, it's like I got ping. Like I got four ideas here, and then I only get to one. And... I know. <laughs> me too. Me too. So one of the things that you made me think about is what's out there today mm-hmm. um, on social media, on TikTok, and in some places where people are seeing a lot of wacky things and saying oh it's trafficking. I heard yeah. something the other day about someone who puts a tissue on a door handle as identified is identifying somebody who could be trafficked and or is a target of a trafficker or different color um, bandanas or mm-hmm. ribbons or things on again on TikTok where Somebody saying, oh, I know all about trafficking because I saw these TikToks about it. Yeah. What do we do with this? What do we, how do we tell people, no, you know, this is not credible. You know what? That has been probably my biggest challenge in doing media work in the anti-trafficking space. I've been doing media work for about seven years now, but I've only been doing it in the anti-trafficking space for about a year and a half. And it was a huge curveball when I started and I, I saw all this misinformation floating around online and I'm like, where are the people getting this information? It's insane, right? Like it, It's like, no, that's not how this works. And then it, what it really came down to was that And I don't necessarily believe these people were ill-intentioned, but I do think that people were looking to be part of the solution. There was a lot of fear-mongering online. There still is. There's still a lot of fear-mongering around it. Like, you hear human trafficking. That's a terrifying term right off the bat, right? And then you see all these these wildly inaccurate images of of white children being bound and thrown on dirty mattresses in basements, which is also wildly inaccurate. And... um, all of a sudden, everybody's terrified, right? Like, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to my child or my family or my friends. And so it starts this pivotal, like, well, I got to keep an eye out for this. And I see it online, too, by the way. I'll I'll be on the thread where someone's like, I was followed by a car. And someone's like, I almost became a victim of trafficking. And it's, it's just, it's so inaccurate. But the only way I've found to, to address it in a sustainable manner is to be like, hey, you know, I work in this field. And I can tell you that this is like like really inaccurate or this isn't plausible. Like this is what this would really look like. Um, when people are being targeted by traffickers, they're not following you around in their cars waiting for a chance to grab you off the street. They're in your phones. They're texting you. They're calling you. Maybe they're in your DMs. They're, they're seeing like, how are you doing? What do you need? What's going on? How can I help? Um, and they're trying to address those needs that that person has because they want the 
their potential victim or their victim to be reliant on them so that when they start to push them into a trafficking situation, they're like, well, look how much I did for you. Do you need me? And I need you. And it becomes they manipulate emotionally, mentally. Um, and then sometimes there is um, physical abuse. Sometimes there is domestic violence. And sometimes it looks a lot like a domestic violence relationship, but one step further. Um, but it, it's not very often anyway. And not to say kidnapping doesn't happen, but trafficking does not often occur, almost never occurs, by just being ripped off the streets or, and, or pulled out of your car. Right. This idea of abduction. No. I think that the movie Taken, yeah. other sorts of kind of Hollywoodization mm-hmm. of this issue really does a disservice to talking about what the reality is. We've got, we've assisted, gosh, I, I don't even know how yeah. many um, survivors who none of none of whom were abducted. Mm-hmm. None. They were mm-hmm. they were groomed. They were made promises mm-hmm. to. They were, you know, vulnerable in some way. Yeah. Um, to what a trafficker was offering. Yes, exactly. And it could be labor or sex because that same kind of mm-hmm. you know come on the promises mm-hmm. you know not opportunities opportunities and preying on what somebody needs yeah. and what their unmet needs are Christabel came to Tallahassee for a community event at the FSU College of Law where she and her colleagues educated us on the topic of human trafficking and disabilities and so I came into Tallahassee, and I, I came to present with my colleague, Liz Kimball, along with her colleague, Beth, uh, Dr. Beth, um, who we all spoke on disabilities. And obviously, when you come and you speak on something in anti-trafficking, we came to speak on one specific issue, but you try and touch on as much as possible because of how complex the issue is, how detailed the issue is. And um, I think we tried to fit a lot into today's content, and we probably left everybody with a lot of content to go over and review and search more. But obviously, working with people with disabilities, um, how to arm the community with persons with disabilities on how to be aware of trafficking, how to react to trafficking. Um, Those were some key points we wanted people to walk away with. But we also wanted people to understand how to work with people who are survivors who have disabilities um, and to be aware that we have them. I think that a lot of people like to uh, assume that we get out of trafficking, we move on with our lives immediately. Like, you're out, everything's fine. And that's not the case. There's often for many of us, lifelong healing that happens. And so for like, for me, I'm not just a survivor of trafficking. I'm a survivor of childhood abuse. I'm a survivor of sexual assault. I'm a survivor of a lot of things. And it all sort of crumbles into one one pile as, as unique as each of those traumas are. And I will be healing for the rest of my life from them. And I will have disabilities due to my trauma for the rest of my life. It's, it's so hard to find people in the community who are aware of the fact that survivors have these disabilities and even more rare for people to be accommodating of them and even rare to for people not only be accommodating of them but to not treat us as outcasts for having them um you, you usually get the response and that's one of the reasons i've loved working with you i can say oh yeah no it's fine i'm just uncomfortable like this is the condition i have and you're like okay yeah totally get it and we move on um if i were to say that to some people they would be like oh well, what do i need to do they would, it would be kid gloves immediately their entire approach to interacting with me would change and 
seeing that not happen here has been like a really good role model of what should be done. Oh, wonderful. Wonder- um, thank you for yeah. saying that. I, I'm really glad to hear it. And, you know, you just made me think of a couple of things. <laughs> One is there is a whole community of service providers around mm-hmm. the many, many different kinds of disabilities that yeah. there are, that people have, that are in our, you know, in our community, in our world. Um, and they might not know about human trafficking. Uh, they rarely do. <laughs> right. And so then you have the anti-trafficking movement mm-hmm. who might not fully appreciate all the issues that are faced by people working in the in the right. disability rights area, provision of service area, and all that. And so it was really compelling today to see those two worlds come together. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And then think, okay, this is what we can do better. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked a lot about about the fact that the community really has to be responsive, mm-hmm. whatever that community is, that everybody sort of has a role. Yep. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how people – well, let's start with that. And then I, <laughs> I want to explore also a little bit, and you might want to integrate this, uh, how do people who are working with survivors, mm-hmm. what should we do? What should we <laughs> not do? What is – important for a survivor's healing or journey and what could be harmful. Yeah. I I think today that everybody did a good job. And if anyone listening hasn't watched our presentation and our panels from today, uh, Raman should definitely be linking those so that you can watch them prior to listening to this because I think it's a a great background for this conversation. But we talked a lot about how this community works on this and this community works on this and how and and presenters and panels were saying like, I hadn't thought of this or like I hadn't learned this yet. And like, oh, this is a change I can make based on this. And really, that's what we need to be seeing is collaboration within these communities. I think that we've all gotten so used to doing it all alone without any support that we don't even think anymore to come to other people and say, listen, I have this need within my program. I have this need within my organization or my client has this need. Um, Can you help me meet that need? And, And instead, they're trying to figure out how to do that need on their own because we've been it's been burned into us as service providers, as people in the communities. Uh, that we have to do it and we have to get the job done ourselves. And we're just now starting to change that narrative and explore this idea that maybe working together is better. Um, and, and that sort of snowballs into working with survivors of trafficking in the anti-trafficking community. Um, for as long as an anti-trafficking community has been around, survivors have been expected to come into the community, be rescued by these organizations. And that's their language, not ours. Um, we, they rescue us. They get us what we need and they help us heal. And then we get to tell our stories for them so that they can help other people. And they t- ingrain it in survivors that that is your worth. Your worth lies in coming and telling your story to others because if you do that, they'll care enough to give us money to help other people. And they may not put it that directly, but that is what's happening. And we're just now starting to fight back. And we're just now starting to get the power to fight back on that and say, no, you don't have the right to exploit me like my trafficker did. You don't have the right to use me and my story and my trauma for your benefit. And then not to support me because what really does happen is they quote rescue us, which by the way, you can't rescue a survivor because if they're not ready to leave, they don't want to leave. They won't. 
They make that decision. They make the decision that they're ready to leave. They make the decision that they need help. They make the, they tell you what they need, and they have to go do the work to build lives after trafficking. So you can't you can't rescue a survivor. You can help them. You can support them. But that that is the correct language to use, not rescue. And when you're engaging survivors, after they've gone through that healing work, you shouldn't be having survivors who just self-identified or you just identified or was identified by law enforcement and say, yeah, tell your story. This is so powerful. That's not, it's traumatizing. It's, it's harmful. Um, if someone wants to tell their story after they've started their healing journey, that is their decision. But they should have complete understanding of the consequences of what might happen to them emotionally, uh, testing it out in safe spaces with maybe a peer group or their counselor or their case manager and really making sure that they understand what the implications are. I've heard many a time, and I know many of my colleagues have heard, um, I'm ready. I want to do this. I want to lead this group. I want to speak at this engagement. And then they renege. I just got off the phone with a survivor in New Jersey who said, I had a survivor come to me, tell me she wanted to do this speaking engagement. And then she pulled out last minute because she realized she wasn't ready. Mm. And I said, yes, absolutely. You should not do this if you're not ready. But there was someone else on the other side of that team who was like, well, why can't they just do it? They already committed. It's like, if she's not ready, you can't make her do this. Absolutely. And there's other ways to engage survivors. And if you're a survivor listening, you don't have to speak. You don't have to tell your story. You know, and I go and I speak and I do trainings and presentations. They get very little of my information. They get very little of my history. Um, it's, I am there to teach someone a subject. And I can use my personal lived experience to say, this is how I'm a trafficker, um, or this is what the type of experiences I had, or these were the vulnerabilities that led to that. But I'm not giving them specifics. Mm-hmm. I'm not giving them. I say this all the time. I hope it's okay to say on this on this yeah, platform. Yeah, Robin. go ahead. No, uh, yeah, it's fine. But I'm not going to share trauma porn with people, mm-hmm. and I use that language all the time. It is trauma porn because people get off on that, mm-hmm. and they and they love that feeling of of really. Um, pitying or feeling oh sorry it's like that that's what motivates people not necessarily like oh look how this person is is overcome this and is now truly doing something else with their lives that sort of impacts others and so for me I get to go and I get to do these presentations but for some they're still being told that their worth is in telling their trauma to people for the benefit of others the community isn't giving survivors resources. I won't say the entire community, but a lot of it is not giving survivors resources to develop professional skills, to learn how to advocate for themselves, to build lives that aren't dependent on their story. Um, to truly sustainably engage survivors, it requires not only for us to uh, give survivors the resources to build those skill sets, but to say, you don't have to go into anti-trafficking. Right. You can be a podcaster or you could be a (laughs) um, firefighter. A teacher. You can do whatever you want. Almost every field has an intersection with human trafficking. If you go to any business-related field, any hospitality-related field, those are closely tied to trafficking. Go into medicine. You go into education. Closely relied to trafficking. You do not have to go into anti-trafficking and do programmatics or do advocacy or run survivorship groups to be a part of anti-trafficking or for your experience to matter. It could simply be using your lived experience to contribute to your community and to your field. But survivors aren't told that. And so part of what I'm trying to do in my work is say you can engage survivors in all kinds of ways. It doesn't have to be their story. It doesn't even have to be them coming and doing trainings. It can be as simple as saying, 
well, what do you do or what do you want to do? And then helping them get there so that they can make their own difference in the world because nobody can take that lived experience away from you ever. It's yours and it's yours alone and it's your truth. And you can use that truth however you want. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to go into your own field and you want to do your own work, go, go do it. The Survive and Thrive Advocacy Center, or STAC's, mission is to prevent, disrupt, and end sex and labor trafficking. STAC Pro is a free one-hour training that empowers businesses, workplaces, and employees with greater knowledge about how to prevent, recognize, and respond to proactively end human trafficking and protect the workplace and your bottom line. Demonstrate your commitment to supporting survivors and making your workplace and our community safer by participating in our free training certification program. Learn more at stackpro.org. Next, our conversation continues as Christabel describes a troubling scene on her trip to Tallahassee. Like I was sitting on a plane yesterday and I saw a girl who was who was pretty young. She was maybe 15, maybe 16, who was with a group of older gentlemen. She got up and she was loudly talking with them. And they were they were older, like they were in their 50s, um, graying hair, like very, definitely older. She was like, well, I can look legal when I try hard enough. And I was like, oh, that was like Melissa Mai's first tip off. Like, oh, that, that's not right. That was me 15 mm-hmm. years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so we started listening closely. And so they get up because they're calling them for boarding for the plane. And we're a couple of groups behind them. And they're all joking about, like, they're making really inappropriate jokes about her body and, like, what they would do to her. And, like, uh, they're talking about how they need to get her hair and nails done when they land. And, like, that's another red flag for me right off the bat. Right? And I'm listening. And so when they get on the plane, everybody sits in, like, different seats. They all, all four of them sit in, like, different seats. But she sits behind one particular gentleman. And I'm paying attention because she's, like, two rows up from me. But she's in an aisle seat. And I'm in an aisle seat behind her and she waves her hand out and I see a crown tattoo on her hand mm. and often you see that with um, trafficking victims that their trafficker will brand them with a tattoo or even a branding sometimes it depends but a co- common one is a crown somewhere usually it's like on the neck or somewhere really visible so that it shows quote ownership mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was like oh no yeah, there's nothing you're going to do that's going to convince me that this is not what I think it is she had really designer clothes and bags and she was clearly young and, and she didn't know what was going on and they were all very inappropriate. So I'd contacted the National Survivor Network or hotline and I was like, hey, uh, this is what I'm seeing. And they were like, don't worry about it. We're going to contact somebody. We got there and the, this group was was taken to the side when they got off the plane. So you contacted the National Human Trafficking Hotline? Uh, yeah. And then, I texted them on the plane. And you said, this is what I see happening. <laughs> um, I'm on this plane, mm-hmm. this flight number, landing in yeah. X. They and- had me give them a flight number, where we were coming from. They asked what seat that they had been in. And I like I gave them a picture of like what I was seeing from my, my angle. And they were like, don't worry about it. We got it when they land. And they were pulled off to the side. Wow. Yeah. Now, you know, this is a story of of what we talked about earlier on the fact of like the brain mm-hmm. needs to understand what trafficking yes. is so so that you can see it. The mm-hmm. eyes can't see what the mm-hmm. mind does not know, yeah. right? And in this case, because of your 
um, experience, understanding, knowledge, mm-hmm. you were able to make that call. Yeah. And, you know, that was really important. All the stuff we do in community, all the information yeah. we share is all about trying to build up this knowledge, right? Yeah, yeah no, 100%. And I think that that, again, goes back to as a survivor, no one can take that knowledge away from you. I think that sometimes having those details come out, it makes people be able to say, oh, that wouldn't have ever been me, <laughs> right? Or, yeah. And I always think, number one, there's that, that saying, but for the grace of God go I. And I really challenge anybody in their life to think back and think about if there wasn't a moment that a decision could have gone the other way or mm. that a, if, if this sort of illness happened to you or if, if this happened to your parent that you yeah. wouldn't have um, had challenges put in front of you that would have led to other decisions. So Absolutely. On. And, and so, so being careful about otherizing is, mm-hmm. is really, is really important, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think that regardless of who you are and what you're doing in life and who you're interacting with, uh, avoiding otherizing is, is key to being human and to, to acting with uh, humanity towards others. Um, I can't think of a single situation where someone deserves to be othered unless they are a danger to others, Mm -hmm. you know? When you are interacting with any human, and we are all different, some of us are just different uh, presenting or acting or visibly uh, presenting different or uniquely, or perhaps there is like a physical disability there, but at the root cause of it all, we are still humans with feelings, with opinions, with things to contribute. And I think that if people talk more openly with each other, they'd realize that we actually all have very unique needs, mm-hmm. but we are taught to stifle those needs and those those triggers in favor of other people's comfort. And I wonder what would the world would look like if we all said, hey, I'm not okay with that, or I need this. And someone else, the amount of times I've done that, and someone else has been like, yeah, oh yeah, me too. I met two other people today who are also autistic, and we all sat in a group, and we were like, yeah, it's really hard because we got a mask, and like it's so exhausting. And then someone else is like, yeah, I hate doing that. And then all of a sudden, what four, four of us were all masking, presenting neurotypical behaviors, and then the second one of us said something like, Four of us collapsed on it, right? And we're like, oh, so we've all just been faking it together. What happens if we stop doing that? What happens if we stop acting like differences are a bad thing, you know? Me needing someone to not make direct eye contact with me all the time, it does not make me less worthy of having a conversation than the next person. Uh, me needing to say, hey, I need to sit down, like I'm in a lot of pain, doesn't mean I'm not capable of having a conversation or I'm less capable of doing my job. It just means I have to have a different accommodation than the person next to me. Thank you for listening. The Imagine Freedom podcast is a production of the Survive and Thrive Advocacy Center, or STAC a coordinator and service provider for survivors of human trafficking in the greater Tallahassee area of North Florida's Big Bend. STAC provides direct assistance to sex and labor trafficking survivors regardless of age, immigration status, sex, gender identity, or faith affiliation. STAC also provides extensive education to many in the public and private sector on how to recognize, respond, and prevent all forms of human trafficking. 
Stack is a referral agency for the National Human Trafficking Hotline. The only way we can do this work is with your help. Go to surviveandthriveadvocacy.org for more information about the many programs and services Stack offers and to support Stack's work with your gift today.